Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Mike Massimino wears many hats, and he wears them all well. Astronaut, professor, and author. But he's also a translator of sorts, taking the mysteries and wonder of space flight and making it approachable for the non-scientists. Massimino's story is one of perseverance, finally realizing his dream of becoming a NASA astronaut on the fourth try, and it's at the center of his terrific new book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible, a book about lessons learned that apply pretty well back on Earth. I left NASA in, uh, in 2014, and uh, I started speaking to different audiences about my experiences. I, I, wrote a first book, uh, as well, a memoir at that, that time. But what's happened over the, the years since, uh, speaking to more and more audiences of various people, organizations, companies, um, what, I, what I found was is, is there were certain, certain lessons learned, certain stories that really resonated that had a clear takeaway. Uh, things like one in a million is not zero for not giving up or... 30 seconds of regret for when you make a mistake and then move on. So, uh, and a lot of these came out of the, a lot of these came out of the Q and a, I would be asked, uh, typically at the end of a keynote, I would give, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, audience, the opportunity to ask questions. They would ask me questions and it was interesting what they were, where you wanted to learn about things like, like trust and dealing with fear and teamwork. And I would answer those questions with other stories that I wasn't necessarily planning to tell. <laughs> I think at first, you know, you want to tell people, oh, I flew into space and look at the rocket. Isn't that cool? But then when I started getting asked more of these personal questions about how the, the culture worked at NASA and how we were able to accomplish what we accomplished, I started to realize that the really valuable part of my experience as an astronaut was, was not just what we did science and technology wise, but also how we worked as a team and how we took care of each other and how we met challenges and and the lessons I learned along the way that are, are useful to others. So that's that's what uh, got me writing this book. Uh, started started to write it about a year and a half ago, uh, with a collection of lessons learned and takeaways from uh, my experiences. What's always intrigued me about you and the various interviews we've done is that uh, I, I think of you among your many qualities as a translator. Ah. And I think in, in well, in the sense yeah. of in the world of science. Yeah. And this is. I remember having this conversation with Neil Tyson almost 20 years ago about how, why is it in our society that if, if someone's at a party and says, well, I'm not really great at maths and sciences, that's acceptable socially. Mm -hmm. But if someone said, I'm not so great with nouns and verbs, they'd be laughed, <laughs> they'd be laughed out of the room. Yeah. And why is it not yeah. the same for maths and sciences? That yeah. was 20 years ago. And so my question is, I, I look at him as someone who's kind of a translator to take this really intricate material and and make it tra translate it for the rest of us and you the same. Is there also some sense of that for you after NASA of, oh, I do seem to have this quality of being able to make it approachable for people who are not in the in the sciences? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I take that as a compliment. Thank you for saying that. And uh, that was also something that I discovered at NASA was that uh, I think I was a pretty good astronaut. You know, I was a good spacewalker and was able to get by with most of the other stuff. But I thought the, the part of the job that I really did enjoy was engaging with the public and telling people 
about the really cool stuff we were doing and making it relatable to people that, you know, this isn't some, I think when people see this as all oh, these are only these geniuses doing this, or, you know, I can't understand it, then they don't pay attention. And I think it was very important. Well, I think it still is for people to know where their taxpayers dollars are going when, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the space program and, and other things as well. And, and the cool things we are doing, uh, it wasn't just to tell people about where their money's going when they pay their taxes, as far as NASA is concerned, which is only a small amount of that, you know, less than one penny of that tax dollar, but, but, but uh, still also a, a ways to inspire people and, and uh, the other advantages that we, we were able to provide for like international cooperation and benefits to the economy and all these things that we would like to talk about. I, I enjoyed telling people about my experiences and, uh, I think much more so than than a lot of my colleagues at NASA. And I always felt that if you really understand a topic, you should be able to explain it to anyone. Mm-hmm. And the idea that something is too complicated is really a cop out. If you uh, hmm. if you really understand something, you should be able to explain it to uh, to someone who's very conversant in it, and also to the person who has no idea. You should be able to make it relatable in some way. So, yeah, this is another this is another one of my ways to try to communicate what we did at NASA and what I, what I learned in relate in ways that are related, relatable. So I got to say your line, uh, I was a pretty good astronaut, maybe yeah. <laughs> my favorite for, for a while, because the notion of, uh, NASA just kind of looking around, like who, who do we got here? Yeah. You know, who, who, yeah, yeah. I, I think even those of us who are not science buffs understand that that's probably not based in reality. Like, yeah, you're a pretty good astronaut. That might be the understatement of the day. Well, I had a, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking in comparison to my colleagues. You understood. Know. Yeah. Understood. So I went for Dave Wolf. I don't know if you have a chance to meet Dave Wolf, but uh, this is not in the book, by the way. But, but uh, Dave one time jokingly said that when they hire us, we're all tens. You know, to get in that, to get through that astronaut selection, you are a ten. And they spit us out as fives. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, we're just not as you know as good as we might have thought. Not that we thought we were going to get in there. It's, that's not a good quality to have thinking you're a big shot. But oh, there's a funny. lot of that, though. So, yeah, I was very happy to be a five as an astronaut, though, because hey, it was a good you know group what? of people. Yeah, as a sports as a sports guy and a certain fan of a certain baseball team in mm-hmm. Queens, uh, yeah. maybe we won't go into that because mm-hmm. this is supposed to be an uplifting conversation. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Always, always available to take a shot at the Mets. Um, as you, you know, but the expression in baseball is "all line drives in the box score." Doesn't That's right? Does, all all doesn't, bases look like line drives. You know, in the loop, box. single, yeah. or a shot off the wall. Yeah, so I'm with you. You had the two trips. Uh, to Hubble. So, oh yeah, no, care, no, I'm not. I don't care yeah. if you're a five or an eight or a ten. Yeah, no, no, know? yeah, I got, yeah. You want to be in an organization where you know there are good people around you that can right uplift you, bring you up to a to a, another level. Absolutely, and that goes. I just had this conversation this morning. It's going to sound like a stretch, but with the my brother-in-law who's a guitar teacher, and we mm-hmm. do guitar lessons via Zoom, and he's an oh, amazing cool. player. Yeah. And so, even in, in sports or in music or in anything. You don't want to be playing with people who are like worse than you or yeah. maybe the same, especially when you're younger. You want to be playing with people who are better than you. So right. you learn from them right. or be exactly. in an environment with people who are yeah. you know, more knowledgeable than you. Right. One of the I parts agree. of the book, which I'm curious about, is when to pivot. Now, yeah. this notion, this podcast is all about before the cheering started, whatever mm-hmm. that cheering, how that manifests itself for you would be getting to NASA and, mm-hmm. and the two shots into space. And we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But 
I'm also fascinated, you know, for the athlete, there's that notion of after the cheering stops mm -hmm. and how does the athlete deal with that? So once your time at NASA is done, mm -hmm. did you have some, uh, a period where, all right, that was great. That mm -hmm. was wonderful. But, uh, what do I do now after going to space twice? Cause that would seem mm -hmm. to the outsider, that would seem to be a, at the risk of using a cliche, a tough act to follow. It, it is, but, uh, you know, and, and, um, I had gotten some pretty good advice from, uh, some of the astronauts before me. Um, Jim Lovell told me we were at a, when you turn about, you know, the idea of the, when the cheering stops, mm -hmm. I was at a, I was a, I just, it was right after, soon after my first flight into space, the Apollo 13 movie came out in IMAX. And so it was like a re-release of that movie when mm -hmm. I was a new astronaut. I'd been an astronaut for about six years by this point, after my first flight. And uh, so I was invited to go to New York for this screening, this opening of this thing. And so Jim Lovell was there, Ron Howard was there, others were there. Jeff Kluger, who wrote the book with, with, uh, with Jim was there. And, uh, we're, the people are taking our picture, you know, we're walking a red carpet together and I'm next to Lovell there. And, uh, and he says, Mike, I have one piece of advice for you. And I'm like, let me hear it. And he said, uh, see all these cameras and these people that are interested in us right now. They're taking our picture. They're not going to care who we are tomorrow. He said, and you have to remember that, that, uh, famous fleeting that one day people are going to be interested in you. And the next day they're going to be interested in something, something else, famous fleeting. And you need to learn that or else you're going to you're going to be disappointed in life. You know, when you leave the astronaut office. So I've come to the realization that it's unlikely I'm going to be invited to the White House ever again. I mean, I might, but, you know, that probably is not going to happen. I don't know how many more first pitches there are for me at baseball games. <laughs> you know, that's kind of for the guys who are in there doing it, you know. And um, but uh, but it's just a different it's, it's just a different type of uh, of experience. I remember. Uh, Speaking to Mike Bloomberg, I don't write about this in the book, but I don't want this this story. But but uh, Mike Bloomer was uh, in the astronaut class before me, and uh, he was very good friends uh, with with me, but also with uh, Dwayne Carey Digger, the pilot for my first flight. And whenever he was coming back to Houston to visit, that we would get together uh, when Digger would come into town, Mike and and uh, and I would get together with him. And and both of these guys had gone on at this point. I was still at NASA. And uh, I asked, you know, I asked them what it's like, and they both kind of gave me the same same answer that it's not that it's worse or better; it's just different. You know, mm -hmm. you can't really say that. Well, my post NASA career, what they were saying is that it's not necessarily better or worse than what you had, but it's just different. And I think that that's that's really the case. I think I got some very good advice advice that I I, I, I thought was great advice that I share in the book from Alan Bean, another one of the moon moonwalkers, who said um, of the to 12, he was the fourth guy to, to walk on the moon, but said, look at this, this next stage in life. And I went to visit him when I was going through this decision to leave NASA and he left to become an, an artist. I mean, he was always an artist, I think, but he dedicated his time to, to painting and he painted um, his, his, I've got the book right over there. It's one of, one of the, one of his books I'm looking at right now, it's called painting Apollo. And so he had this experience as an astronaut that he now painted uh, these amazing, that they went for quite a lot of money too. You know, he did really well with this. He painted these these uh, paintings of his experiences and and did things that could use his imagination to do things that never happened, like playing a catch of football with Pete Conrad on the moon. You know that. Hmm. 
that that he, he painted that because they you know didn't do that. But he was he said, I wish that was something I did. So he painted it. But he had these this wonderful way to to share the experience artistically. And uh, he told me that it's you know you you might have to start at scratch, never feel entitled, you know that you've done this and you've risked your life and you didn't get paid a lot of money and now something good is going to happen. Now you're going to cash in. He says that is a that's like a death sentence right there. You're never going to be happy. You can't have that type of attitude. You can't feel like you're entitled to anything. And look at this as an opportunity to do something else that is great. It's probably not going to be as much fun as mm -hmm. being an astronaut. I remember reading that well before, many years before I became an astronaut, I read Mike Collins' book uh, called Carrying the Fire. And he says that he came to the realization that he had the most interesting job in the world when he, in, in, that he could ever have in his life when he was in his 30s. <laughs> that was, that's when he was uh, you know, an Apollo astronaut. I, you know, I think yeah. early in the 40s, he was out of the program already. But um, that's kind of the way it, uh, it is for, for most of us, that we move on to something else. And that's okay. You know, it's... it's uh, I think it's what you do with it too. If you're able to do something with it, I've tried to do, I do it in my teaching at Columbia and my work at the Intrepid Museum and this, the talks I give and with this book as well, I, I try to try to share my experiences because as you said, I, that's what I like doing uh, is sharing and trying to make it relatable to people. Uh, that, that's where I've you know dedicated my life now, but still to this part of the space program, but different than what I did before. So uh, one quick thing before we get to growing up in Long Island and and uh, Columbia, mm -hmm. uh, and that is you mentioned first pitches, throwing out the first yeah. pitch. How uh, many of you, about how many have you done? Oh, I don't know. I think, uh, geez, I've done probably uh, three or uh, over at different places, probably about, yeah, I've done mostly with the Mets. I've done okay. No one is spring training with the Mets. I think I've done three for games with the Mets. I've done one with the, with the, uh, with uh, the Tigers, that was a disaster. I found out about that at the last minute. I was at the game doing a presentation to a bunch of kids at the ballpark. They had like a space day. And Bill Prady is a friend of mine, uh, the, the guy who created the Big Bang Theory. And uh, he, he has a connection with the Detroit Tigers. And they, were, they had a space day. It was like an afternoon game. And kids were coming from from the local schools. And I gave the thing, oh, you're going to throw out the pit. I go, I don't think this is a good idea. And I really didn't get to warm up. And it was a disaster. <laughs> That didn't go well. And I threw one out. So hold on, time out, time out, time out, time out. What does didn't go well mean? Oh, it was terrible. So what happened was is that you need to practice these things. And I had not practiced for a while. And uh, so this was this was in, uh, I guess it was in, oh, what hell was it? It was in uh, 2014. Okay. <laughs> so right before I left NASA, I was still with NASA. And I go to this game. And uh, they ripped this. I go, I got to warm up, you know, because it's not – it's not really that hard of a thing to do. If you can, if you can throw a baseball well enough, it's 60 feet. You know, you can do that, but it's, it's, you're up on a mound, you know, <laughs> an angle. And so I practiced a lot and, and threw, right. and always threw well when I did my pitches. Right. And uh, I was like, I got it. But the guys, oh, don't want to warm you up. And I'm like, when, and, and we're getting ready to throw this pitch. I go, when am I going to warm up? <laughs> and, and the guy said, oh, we'll go back. He kicks me in the hallway and we couldn't really see anything. And I threw it by him and it, went for about a mile and couldn't even get the ball back. And I'm like, this is terrible. And so the sequence of things is I'm on the mound and there's a player, I forget who the player was like, a, but he was an infielder who wasn't playing that day. Right. And the, 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 the thing that I liked about it, there's a sequence of photos. They have uh, the tiger. I think his name is pause is the name of the, the tiger, their, their mascot. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a tiger, you know, really kind of yeah. fun, kind of kid friendly tiger, you know, with a hat on it. 
and he's and he's like clapping, and he had cheerleaders, and they're all clapping. <laughs> but it's a sequence of me throwing the pitch, and you see pauses going like this, and the girls are clapping, and then the pitch gets delivered, and it's not going well. It was about twenty feet; it was wide, and hit the dirt and bounce and everything. This infielder made a nice play and grabbed it, but it was scuffed up. But as it's going, you see, they sent me all these. They did like a you know, like almost like yeah. a time release of targets from. Bah, 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 bah with this and so it's like me throwing and they're all happy and then all of a sudden they get like a little concerned <laughs> and the ball hits and pause puts his hand you know his hands over his eyes so that wasn't good so you want to warm up for these things the last one i did was with the yankees and i am not necessarily a yankee i didn't grow up a yankee fan but i've come to admire that team for okay various reasons i've become very good friends with joe torrey and he's introduced me to a lot of people there great organization very nice people and on the 50th uh, anniversary of the apollo landing they invite me to throw out a pitch. I'm not going to turn down this, you know, this this opportunity. So no. I was very honored to do it. And uh, and, it, and then they tell me, I thought, you know, like I said, I threw to a player that last time and he was able to catch it. And then they, they said, oh, Mike, we have some good news. Uh, no one's going to catch your pitch. I go, who's that? And they said, uh, Jack Aker. Do you remember Jack Aker, bud? Jack, yeah. Jack Aker like- was on the mound during Apollo 11. He was on a a mound. I'm like, he was on a mound 50 years ago. He's on. I go, how old is Mr. Aker now? He said he's 84. (laughs) So, but he was great. You know, he was still in good shape and everything. And I get, I'm getting ready to throw this thing. And, and he says to me, he goes, Mike, do you want the ball after you throw it? And I'm like, well, sure, Jack, unless you want it. And he goes, oh, no, I don't, I don't want the ball. If it gets by me, I wonder if you want me to go back and get it. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't have much confidence, I don't think. But that was a different story. But because my shoulders, I think, have been beat up so badly with all the space walking and stuff. I've had one right. surgery. I, I know I still have a tear in each shoulder, and I hadn't thrown the ball for a while. So I agreed to do this. So, again, you got to practice. And lifting the baseball felt like a cinder block was over my head, and I could not do it. So, anyway, I kept practicing. I went to Riverside Park on the Friday. It was a Saturday game. And I was like, oh, please, God, help me. And it was something I was able to do, but I can't, it was like it was something in my head almost. Like I, I'm holding a loaf of bread, and it's behind my head, and I'm going to throw it like a newspaper. And it was able to, I was able to get enough elevation on it so that it crossed the plate. And that's what I did. And then the Yankees let me warm up, and it went fine. I threw it right into the Jack's glove. So nice. I don't know why we got on these things. No, no, this is uh... – no, this is the important stuff. How to get onto the ceremonial first it's pitch. Better I mean, to do it when you're young. I would say that. Yeah. You know, as you get older, it gets it. Believe it or not, it gets a little tougher to to get it over the plate. Just trying to imagine the reaction of the kids in Detroit that day. Oh, the kids, they were the, the science kids were like, yeah. this guy, this guy went into space. Well, you can't, well, you know, they weren't a very good team that year, and uh, and so the stands there weren't many. It was a day game during the week, so there weren't many people in the stands. Thank goodness. <laughs> To witness this for younger generations i think it's hard to understand everybody watching one thing on tv at the same time and i'm not saying better or worse or mm-hmm. good or bad it's just the reality of how we watch television right now but for you growing up on long island can mm-hmm. you kind of describe maybe the lead up mm-hmm. to watching men walking on the moon for the first time yeah but i was uh, six years old when that happened and uh the buildup was uh, was uh, was something I remember as well, very clearly, that uh, this was a huge thing going on in the in the country. And I remember thinking at that time that this was when I was six years old, first grade, as as they were building up. You know, Apollo eight went to the moon, December of sixty eight, and then Apollo nine did a check out of the command module and lunar module, and then 
really the lunar module at that point. And then Apollo 10 flew to the moon and they did an approach, but did not land. That was what their mission was. And then Apollo 11 was going to land. And uh, it was uh, it was so important, I thought, what was happening. And I, I remember thinking that this is the most important thing that will ever happen when I'm alive. And it's mm-hmm. the most important thing that's ever going to happen for 500 years. That's what I thought as a little kid. And because I remember like learning about things that had happened 500 years ago and the exploration that took place back then. And I was like, where, you know, 500 years past that, you know, this is going to be the, this is going to be the next mark for 500 years as, as a little kid. That's what I, what I thought. And, uh, and it was, as you saying, everyone was listening. It was it, it really, everyone was listening. The whole world was. And what those guys have told me, uh, the, the, the Apollo astronauts is when they went on their tours around the world, that it was never you did it. The Americans did it. It was always we did it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it defied what they, they thought was going to they, you know, it was like for America, you know, people thought it was, you know, it was, it was, it was an American, it was American taxpayer dollars that did this. It was a race with the Soviet Union to get to the moon. So it was seen as a very American thing by us, I think, or by the astronauts. But what was interpreted by the world was a world achievement. It was beyond anything that one country could do. And it was seen as something, it was an accomplishment for everyone who was on the planet. And I don't, they didn't expect that to happen. Um, but that's the way this was. It was so cool. I mean, the Soviet Union, who lost the race with us, publicized it. It was their French page, front page news. Everyone was watching over there as well. Every country in the world was tuned into this. It, it, it overcame any sort of restrictions people might have or interest in other things. Everyone was interested. Every, every human who was alive was interested. It was like we're sending a representative from our planet to another place for the first time. And growing up on Long Island, before you get to college and then graduate school with your family, that love of science, that kind of dream that you started to have, is that was that supported? Oh, yeah. My my uh, my parents were pretty easy to please, though. My uh, they never had neither of them. They were both very smart, but they never had a, good students, too. But neither of them had a chance to go to college. And so their greatest wish and aspiration, I think, for for my brother and my sister and I were, were to get an education and be able to pursue whatever we wanted to, to pursue. They didn't have the the opportunities. They grew up during the depression and, you know, it was a different, different time. So uh, they were, you know, they were very supportive. Uh, I was telling a story last night to some of my students. We had a, a, a an astronaut visiting Woody Holberg and they asked us about family support. And I was like for my mom, who's generally was a very nervous Italian lady who grew up in Brooklyn, you know, and was, you know, always kind of like always, nervous about stuff it seemed like she was really very supportive of this and i overheard her she was like kind of she was saying it to me with a group of people or and but i overheard her saying that um she could never discourage her kids from doing anything that they wanted to do even if it was a bit dangerous and i think she gave an example of someone she knew a friend of hers or something who didn't let their kid do something i don't know what it was it was mm-hmm. i don't know if it was join a service or do something they wanted to do something with their career and the mom said no you know you can't you can't do that for her. something like that and she said she could never imagine telling that saying that to a child so as nervous as she was for me uh i i think that's you know that's what what, what they both her and my dad did a, i think a good job of encouraging uh their kids to do whatever they they wanted to do and they were there to fully support so they were they were great with that way so when you go off to Columbia, understanding that they never had the opportunity to go to yeah. college, is there spoken or unspoken pressure on you? Like, hey, you know, 
go be happy, but this is serious business. You know, you're getting an opportunity that we didn't have. No, but there wasn't. They, they were really, I mean, I look back at it. I wish I was half as good a parent as they were. They were, uh, <laughs> they were, and I was also the youngest. So they were kind of tired by the time I showed up. Oh, okay. I was an afterthought. So they were just happy. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. They were just, they just like, you know, be a good person. Uh, we'll support you and whatever you want to do. But you have, my, my father's restriction was don't be a, don't be a bad, don't be a bad guy. You know, don't do things that are immoral or illegal or you don't do any of that. But other than that, you do the best you can, you know, and they were, like I said, they were really easy to please. They really didn't have put it. I didn't feel any pressure or expectation other than to try to, to be a good person. That was where the, that's what they expected from me. And uh, the Columbia stuff, I remember there was a time, uh, Bud, my, when my freshman year, you know, going to college, even going to Columbia was still close to where I grew up. I, you know, I was away at school, a half an hour away. You know, I was a, it was far away from home, you know, because I didn't sleep in my, my bedroom any longer and I had to do my own laundry and all these magical things had to happen. So uh, for me, it was, you know, it's like going to Mars, man. When I was, when I went off to, to Columbia, it was, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and uh, I had my doubt, you know, I was like, I don't know if this was the right choice. Maybe I should have stayed at home or gone somewhere else. And I was talking to my dad about it and uh, he ended up, I don't think he was playing any psych, psych, uh, psychological game with me. But I remember he ended up uh, like on a on a following phone call. He said, "You know, I looked into you transferring to a you know a school closer, and it's certainly possible." He kind of went to the library or started asking questions to see about transferring, how hard that is. And he goes, "I don't think you know if you wanted to do that. If you're really unhappy there, I don't you know I don't think that that's you know that's not an issue." I was like, "Whoa!" You know, so it wasn't like you know, my friends would tell me differently. Like there, my dad was always telling me to take a break when I was studying. He's like, "Why don't you go?" You know. Go and have, you know, go do something with your friends or take a break or, you know, take a walk. Go actually, he was always like, you know, doing that. And uh, was my friends were like, oh, no, my dad told me I better, if I was having trouble with my homework, I better learn it. I said, when I go, I go, I go, I go well, my dad, and I said, my dad, I was having trouble. And he said, ah, just take a break. And I, and I said, it's one of my buddies. And his father had like gone and was a lawyer and everything, right? Yeah. So he, he was like, well, what would your dad say? I, I don't know. You know, I've got the test tomorrow and I don't know it. And, uh, you know, instead of taking a break, he said, oh, my dad would say, you better darn well know it by the morning. <laughs> you know, like that kind of, so it was, uh, I, 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 they, I thought they were really good in that way. And I never felt any real pressure, which was a good thing. Now, I never took any engineering classes mm -hmm. in college, but I've heard you speak about them. And so mm -hmm. engineering at Columbia, those classes, just a piece of cake, right? No problem whatsoever. No, I got my butt kicked. But I, I was, I'm, it was, I'm, you know, I'm, being a, I'm being a wise guy. Yeah, no, it was, no, it was, uh, I thought it was, uh, school is always challenging though. I think learning is the hardest thing we, we do. It's the hardest thing, I, whether it's learning a new skill or learning how to, learning in a classroom is hard to get information inside of our head and be able to, to metabolize it and spit it back out. And right. it's a, I think it's a good skill to have and doing it under pressure is another thing too, you know, being able to sit there in an exam and, and you know, think and not understand that, well, I kind of may have an idea, but I don't know how to do this problem. What am I going to do? And, and uh, problem solving, I, th I think that's really what the engineering ed and science education is about is, is solving problems. And that, I think that makes it a very useful education to have um, mm -hmm. in, in today's world. Right. So, uh, but no, it was rough. I had, you know, I, I took my lumps at Columbia. Um, it took me a while, especially to get used to the whole thing. 
Um, I, I was prepared, I thought, in some ways really well in, in high school, but there are other things that I just wasn't didn't seem to we were catching on as, as easily. And um, and it's a competitive place, you know. So uh, I, I I did I did better as time went on. And then, you know, when I went to grad school, same thing at MIT, another tough place. I, I, I remember after failing my qualifying exam to get my doctorate, I'd studied for this thing for a year and I failed it. And uh, it was, it's, a big, it's the big exam you take in order to be able to continue to get your PhD up there. And, um, and uh, so you get the bad news from your advisor, right? That's, uh, that's, that's their duty to give you the good or bad news. And so I go into his office. And as like I, and I knew at the time I had passed it on. He's like, no, Mike, you didn't. I got roasted in the uh, in this oral exam, and he said, uh, you know, you, you didn't do well at all. And he said, typically we give a student a second chance, and we would we will give you another chance, but you did so poorly. <laughs> we were wondering if 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 you know this might not might not be worth your time <laughs> to give it another try. So uh, he says, why don't you? And I go, can I think about it? And he goes, yeah, of course, you know take some time. So I thought about it for a couple of days and I'm like, ah, what the heck, you know, what's the worst going to happen? I fail again, big deal. I can take more classes. You know, I'm not going to be in any different of a situation really six months from now. It was take it again, like in six months. So I went in there and told him my decision and he kind of, you know, he didn't, you know, he's kind of like just gave me a smile and he said something that I think pertains to this, to this, uh, to this conversation. He said, you know, Mike, if one can learn to live with indignities, one can go far in life. Hmm. And that's the way he was saying, that's like a fancy MIT, Cambridge, Harvard way of saying, if you can get your butt kicked and, and not let it destroy you, you can go far. And I was able to, to take a different approach. The next time I took the exam, I studied a different way. I got help from some of my colleagues. It was the oral exam that, that, that I got toasted on. And so my, I had a group of friends of mine who, Two of them went on to become astronauts after me, believe it or not. But two of these guys, Nick Patrick and Greg Shamatov, and a few of my other friends, set up these Friday afternoons where they would they would pummel me. I would provide I would provide food for these people too to destroy <laughs> me. And they played professor and then just kicked my butt, and that got me ready to face the fire again. So, but I think that's that's part of it is you know these struggles we have as young people uh, if they don't if they don't destroy us if you can continue to move forward you. You can go far. God bless that advisor and your two friends also. Come in, yeah. Because easy, easy to fold up your tent at that point. You've talked eloquently about the years uh, after that. You had, you know, really quality jobs. This is not exactly chopped liver working for McDonnell Douglas yeah, and, yeah. and teaching at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. The notion of keeping alive the dream of uh, going to NASA. No names are necessary, but are there people who love and love you through those years who kind of quietly, Hey Mike, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's time. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should give it up. <laughs> give up the dream. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it was, um, I think not, not, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily surround myself with people like that. And if I would ignore them, <laughs> I didn't say that when I, when I got medically disqualified uh, because of my eyesight and I wanted to try to do something to improve it, you know, I was looking at options to try. I ended up going through, they didn't accept anything, but someone, one of my, someone said, well, you know, uh, is it really worth the expense to try to, cause I, it was, I, I, when I went through the vision training, I went to see an optometrist. I was like, 
You know, is it worth the expense? You got to, your eyes are very important. And I'm like, my eyes don't do me any good unless I can become an astronaut. <laughs> it's not, it's, I mean, that's what, you know, I need to get them better. And so I, I kind of tried to stay away from what I knew was not good advice. I mean, that is, to me, I knew, I knew that it was important to try and that anyone who told me different didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, and people, you know, people can discourage you and that's okay. But you, you know, you can't, you can't listen to, to those naysayers too much or else you'll really regret it. Remember where you were when you got the acceptance? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was, uh, I, I knew the call was coming, which was kind of odd, I think. But this was, so this was, in, I was selected in 1996. I interviewed my interview group, he interviewed a group of 20. And one of my, uh, one of the guys I interviewed with was Mark Kelly, who is now a senator uh, in mm-hmm. Arizona. He's married to Gabby Giffords, the congressman who was mm-hmm. attacked uh, uh, with a, she was shot in the head. It was a terrible story. That's Mark's wife. And then Mark now is a senator from Arizona. So anyway, we kind of, we hit it off right away. Mark's a good guy, and and we stayed in touch. And there was like a, a, a email group, like I, you know now I don't, now we have Facebook, and I don't know what they do now when people stay in touch when they want to be astronauts. But that there was like an email group where they were sharing information. It was the military folks, you know, the Navy? He was in the Navy, and so he kind of snuck me in there as a as a civilian. And uh, so there were there was a pretty good network of information going around there about not really anything tremendous about, oh, they're going to have another group of people coming in or this happened or that happened. This is what I heard. And someone had called on a Friday about something, someone who was an interviewee and, you know, waiting to hear and uh, wrote and said, they told me all the calls. I called over there today about something and they told me all the calls were going out good or bad on Monday. Right. And I was like, whoa, I got that news on a Friday afternoon. I was at Georgia Tech and I just got out of my office, started walking around the campus because I didn't know what else to do. And I, you know, and I did whatever I needed to do to get through that weekend. So I knew that call was coming Monday morning. And so I did not go to work because if it was bad news, I didn't want to be crying at my desk. And I was uh, at home um, in the toilet when the phone rings and my, my wife knocks on the door and says, uh, there's a guy from NASA on the phone. So I get on, so I get on the phone. I'm like, hello? So it's, it's Dave, uh, he goes, Mike, this is Dave Leitzma from the Johnson Space Center. How are you doing today? And I was like, Dave, I don't know yet. You're going to have to tell me. And uh, uh, he said, well, I hope you're going to be, uh, you're doing well because we're really excited and we, we want to make you an astronaut. We hope you're still interested. <laughs> <laughs> After all these years. No, I changed my mind. Yeah. Over I'll pass. I'll pass. I was like, yes, 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 absolutely. And, uh. Yeah, that, I knew that phone call was going to change my life one way or the other. Well, if I didn't get picked, it probably wouldn't have changed much, but but I knew that it had the potential to change my life, and it did. I hope you're still interested. That's yeah. Classic. Can you imagine? I think it, I think once they had one guy who turned him down. I think they think about that every time they make the phone call, maybe. But there was a. I had, it's kind of like urban legend that someone's changed his mind. We could talk for a whole weekend about the shots yeah. actually into space, but. Uh, two quick things. Sure. One, um, tell me again about what what you employed during one of the space shots that your uncle taught you. Something your uncle taught you. Uh, working on a car. Yeah. When you were growing up. I don't know. Yeah, that's not in the new book. I don't think that's in the old the other book. But uh, yeah, no. So what it was is uh, what had happened in space was that I had stripped a screw 
on a hand, I was trying to remove a handrail and uh, it had two screws at the top and two at the bottom. And by I, I cut three of the four out. It was one line in a checklist. It was a really simple task. But I, I stripped one of the screws on the on the, the bottom of this handrail. So if you picture this pole sort of this handrail has a top and a bottom and the bottom is still stuck. The top is loose. And uh, we had a we, we had lots of things to do that day. And this was preventing us from doing this, re, continuing the repair and was unthinkable what I had done. I couldn't believe it. And uh, the solution came up to see if I could just tear it off because it was loose at the top, but still fixed at the bottom. So if I could get some leverage on it and yank it, it would snap the bolt, right? And they did a test on the ground of this with a fish scale. They tied a fish scale to the top of a similar handrail with the one bolt stuck in there and it ripped off at 60 pounds of force. So I needed to rip, get 60 pounds of force into this thing to, to break it off. And uh, when I'm, as I was about to grab it, I remembered when I was a kid, I was throwing a ball against the stoop, right? I was throwing my rubber ball against the stoop and playing catch with myself, right? And my uncle, he had a garage, but no one ever went inside. It was like full of crap. There was not, no way you get inside <laughs> of this thing. So his car was always outside. And he would work on his car in the, in the, on the street, right? He would jack it up and pretty dangerous situation. But he would work on it in the street. So he's working. It's like a Saturday afternoon. And I'm throwing my ball. And he comes across. The hood is up. He's right across the street from us. He comes walking across the street all full of oil and grease and filthy. And uh, and he says, where's your father? And they go, he's inside. So he knocks on the door. I don't think he wanted to go in because he was filthy. And my mom would kill him. So, uh, so my, my father disappears and my father grew up on a farm and he had these tools. I never seen tools like this before my father. He had like a track. I think it was a screwdriver for a tractor. It was like, like four foot long. It was this gigantic screwdriver he had, this gigantic screwdriver that he kept in the farm. And he, he goes, as he's leaving the house with my uncle with this giant screwdriver, he says, why don't you come across the street? Maybe you'll learn something. Right. <laughs> what it was is that the oil filter was jet. He couldn't even like my uncle couldn't unloosen the couldn't loosen the oil filter and he banged the crap out of it. He couldn't get it off of there. So what my father did is he took a, a hammer, you know, and he, he rubber I meant like a mallet and he smacked that that screwdriver through the the end of the of the uh, of the oil filter. So he kind of goes from one end, the you know, it's kind of sideways, one end, it comes out the other. So now my uncle has a handle to pull on. Right, he's got leverage, and he he curses, and, and he I don't want to say what he was saying, and he you know he's pulling with a rag, and he's like, bang, bang, and wham, it, he got enough leverage because you know that he had the giant screwdriver now sticking out of it, he could pull on that instead of trying to get this this difficult task with the with just grabbing the the, the oil filter. So anyway, uh, and I, I, I when my the thought that went through my head on orbit as I'm you know, working on this billion dollar telescope. When I grabbed that handrail, I was like, this one's for you, Uncle Frank. And I, gave, I, I mentally said what he said and gave it a couple yanks and it snapped right off, just like that oil filter let loose on his 1972 Ford Torino. So. That's beautiful. You've told me before about this has to be one of the most unusual commutes anyone has mm -hmm. ever had. And Long Island, people know about commuting a bit. Um, yeah. The notion of you're on your lawn and wait a minute, earlier in the day, yeah. I was actually up there is a perspective that only a handful of people 
on this planet will have. Is it yeah. something that you can prepare for that kind of perspective and the uh, notion yeah. of, oh, wait a minute, the beauty is down here. Yeah. Yeah. There's a chapter I write about that, uh, but uh, toward the end of the book, I think it's the ninth chapter. It's called Be Amazed. And uh, what I took from space, uh, looking at our planet, because you don't see any bad things in space going on. You know, you see just beauty. And it looks like a paradise. It looks like heaven. Like I'm looking into into heaven is what I felt like. This is this is so beautiful, and uh, that stays with you. And I think it's important, especially for us who have seen it, but to try to convey that that beauty is what's down here. It's not just admired from afar. It's it's part of our everyday lives. And no matter where you live, you know, New York City is a beautiful place if you look at it through that lens. You look at people's faces, and you look at the architecture and just the motion, the rhythm of the city is an amazing thing. And the planet itself is amazing. Going to a park, if you live in the city or in the country, looking at the trees or just feeling the breeze or weather, you don't get any weather in space. I don't complain about the weather anymore, but you know, it's not there. And so, you know, there's no rain, there's no wind, there's no sm natural smells of, of our planet. You don't have any of those things in space, all that stuff, all that beauty is down here and uh, it is, it's amazing that we're here and we need to try to appreciate it as best we can. Mike Massimino, his new book is Moonshot, a NASA astronaut's guide to achieving the impossible. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well, no extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin. And this is before the cheering started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Mm -hmm.